you know, I'm just admiring your Skype profile picture. Yeah. <laughs> I think it like it's like you just got done with like the young and the restless there. That's what I was aiming for. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations. This is Adam Rush, your host, and I want to thank you for joining me. Today's episode is with Dr. Billy Goldberg. Some of you may recognize Dr. Goldberg from his work as an author. His first book, Why Do Men Have Nipples? Hundreds of Questions You'd Only Ask a Doctor After Your Third Martini, was published in August 2005 and reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list, where it remained for 11 weeks. His second book, Why Do Men Fall Asleep After Sex? More Questions You'd Only Ask a Doctor After Your Third Whiskey Sour, was published one year later in August 2006, and also reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, I've read both of these books and found them to be extremely informative and very entertaining. Now, in addition to being an author, Billy started his own talk show. In February 2008, he became the host of the Dr. Billy Goldberg Show that some of you may listen to on Dr. Radio Sirius XM Channel 110. If you haven't tuned in, I urge you to do it. It's a really great show. When Billy is not writing books or hosting his own talk show, he's an emergency medicine physician at NYU Bellevue Hospital in the heart of New York City. And this is where I met Dr. Goldberg. It was during my training in emergency medicine residency at NYU Bellevue. And I consider him to be a role model for his unique ability to combine humor and levity to patient care and resident education. So this was a really fun interview for me. And we talk about Billy's childhood, how he became interested in media, the event that led to the idea of his first book, Why Do Men Have Nipples, some of the most influential people in his life, and the best advice he provided me on the final day of residency training, which I am so grateful for, and so much more. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Billy Goldberg. Welcome to the show, Dr. Billy Goldberg. Thank you very much for uh, giving us time today. This is an overwhelming pleasure to me. <laughs> I'm giddy with excitement. Yeah, I bet you are. I want to get started by just touching on how we first met. And that goes, I was thinking about it today, goes back 12 years, believe it or not. We're approaching 12 years. I started residency at NYU Bellevue. By the way, do you guys, do you still call it NYU? It's just been like two or three different benefactors I've noticed. What do you guys refer to it as? The palace. <laughs> no, it, yeah, we're still NYU Bellevue. You know, we have this new NYU Langone Medical Center. Right. Because of uh, one of our benefactors. But, the, you know, the program is, you know, our homes are mostly NYU in, in Manhattan and Bellevue, but you know, it doesn't really matter. I'm not, I'm not obsessed with that name thing. Right. 
Are you are you one are you an ER or an ED person? You know, so are you going through medical I, I'm school? I'm asking you the question. Yeah, I was yeah, I was an I'm ED gonna, person. Take over your it's good, please do. <laughs> I'll learn something. Uh, I was an ED person, and I'm like, you know what? Screw it. We're mature enough. We're confident in ourselves. I'm down to ER again. Me too. I like ER better. ED sounds. I I every time I say ED, erectile dysfunction, I think of Bob Dole. <laughs> And it's just, it, I, I don't like it. It's just, it sounds so forced. Yeah. So I, I'm not obsessed with names at all. Good. All right. So we could call it NYU Bell. So great. Because, you know, my medical school actually changed names, right? So I went to UMDNJ, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Ten years later, it's now Rutgers Medical School. So Which is kind of easier. That's yeah, actually a good one. It's much easier. But then you have to go back and explain to everyone. I've always had problems with UMDM. I, it's just, it just doesn't come out. It's like a tongue twister. Yeah, yeah, it is. So you were my attending at NYU Bellevue back in between 2004 and 2008. And you probably don't know any of it. I probably never told you any of this because I don't think I ever filled out evaluations about you. But I have no idea. Uh -oh. I have no idea what you thought of me. You know, who knows? But uh, I know what I thought about you. And I am I going to get to find that out now? Right now, yeah. So, right, we're talking because you've inspired me in some way, right? You, you're someone who, in medicine, that I've always kind of looked up to, and the reason I was always impressed by the way you were able to simplify really complex medical knowledge to me, and and it's fascinating because I never knew about your kind of your right your other life. I never knew that you were a writer and author and painter and actor. And later on learning about some of those other successes, a lot of it kind of stems from your ability to take information and translate it, right, to the public. And so what I was impressed about was this ability to simplify. And with that, though, it was really this confidence that you exuded, this control. And whether you had it or not, I don't know, but it's what I perceived. And on top of this confidence and control, it was lighthearted. There was always humor involved. And the bottom line, I was thinking about this today, you always made it look so easy. And, you know, when you're going through training, you know, you pick doctors, these ideal emergency physicians who you want to kind of model your practice after. And so you are one of those people in my life. And so that's kind of where, where you land, you know, that actually, that means a lot to me. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out why I'm 0 for 20 on ending of the year awards. If, <laughs> if I have that impact, maybe I've touched one person over the past 20 years. Yeah. No, but I'm an art of medicine guy. I, th I think that's what I love. And, you know, there are smarter people. I don't think you have to be the smartest person in the room in emergency medicine. A lot of it is just, you know, being able to process information, being able to make rational decisions, and more than anything, being able to communicate that to the patient or the learner when you're working with residents. And I like the art of medicine, I think, because I like art in general, in whatever form it is. Yeah. So I was wondering, you know, humor comes to you very easily, <laughs> unlike myself. I'm not really a funny guy, and I have no intent to ever become one. But how does humor play into the care of patients for you? Do you use it? Of course I use it. There's so many different forms of humor. You're going to hear me also say humor and say it incorrectly. <laughs> my wife gives me a hard time. I don't say my H's. It's like the Donald Trump, right? Like, I, I, if huge. I say it's huge. <laughs> Humor, it just sounds wrong. 
Right. That's the New Yorker in me. Yeah. You know, there's so many different forms of humor. And, you know, it's not Patch Adams necessarily with a red nose, right. you know, and a squirting flower. But, you know, people, no matter what you're in the ER for, it's a remarkably intense time for people. And, you know, we're so used to some of this stuff, but they're terrified. They're always thinking of horrible things. So if you can disarm them in some way, just by putting them at ease, I think it works. So I think sometimes it works very well. And other times people are, you know, can be, you know, a little put off by it, but I try and read the situation and I don't go in with the intention. It's just kind of my personality. I just try and be, you know, make people feel at ease and that sometimes that's humor and sometimes it's, I think I just said it correctly. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning. There you go. Evolving. My God. Yeah. So have you had an instance where it's backfired on you? Do you remember any where humor has backfired? Well, if you don't have a moment where you stick your foot in your mouth, you're not even making an attempt to connect to people or you have no insight into it. So there's an interconnection between you and any person you talk to. And sometimes it works great and sometimes it doesn't. I can't think of a specific time where I made you know, a joke or something that backfired, but I've certainly had bad patient interactions. Everyone does. Sure, sure. I remember a time in medical school that was, you know, this is just being a clueless medical student. It haunts me to this day. Because I was in the operating room and you're just starting to learn. The operating room is so terrifying because there's so much etiquette that you don't know about. And right. they also love to make the medical students feel bad about themselves. Right. Because you either break scrub or you do something stupid. But, you know, you're trying to impress. And they sent me out to get a frozen section on a patient. You start to learn that you can talk in the operating room and there's this, you know, kind of freedom because the patients are usually asleep. And... I walked in with the results and they, and they asked me what it is and I kind of blurted out, oh, it's a, it's malignant. And the patient was awake. Right. And I just remember everyone, you know, they, they kind of set me up for it, but it was my fault. And I just, I still to this day can feel the pain of that moment. Has that impacted any behaviors that you do today or have done over the last part of your career? You know, I think I'm always trying to be sensitive to those things, but you slip up from time to time. But the memory of it, I think it's important not to forget these things. You have to check yourself. Yeah. You know, I actually have something similar. I remember wheeling a patient in the ICU as a resident and kind of saying something similar. He was a young 20-year-old kid with liver cancer. And I remember saying, uh, you know, we're going to a CAT scan to rule out liver cancer, something like that. Always remembered that. I've dropped the C word on, on occasion yeah. with patients. You know, and it just, they just respond, you know, even when you think, well, wh wh why are you doing this test? You know, we're, well, you know, one of the things in the diagnosis, you know, that we're looking for is cancer. And I think it's important to address it, but sometimes that just backfires because people are like, I have cancer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? I always thought you were a West Coast guy and you grew up in New York. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a born and raised New Yorker. <laughs> it's funny. I did my residency at UCLA, at the UCLA Olive program. Right. And, you know, went to medical school in New York, but right. I came back to Bellevue. So Bellevue was my first job. Right. And so people viewed me as this California guy. Right. And there was one resident at the time who was from Georgia. Uh -huh. And I started calling him country boy right. in front of him. Right. And so he started calling me Hollywood. Right. And it kind of everyone thought I was from California. But it. no, I was I was born in New York City, yeah. raised in the suburbs and now have been you know, here for a long time. So I'm a New Yorker. Right. Growing up, did you listen to radio shows, watch a lot of TV? Where was the start of your kind of media career? Did it start as a child? I don't know. I was an enormous TV person, and I still am. Right. I make the excuse 
that it's important to know what your patients are doing. So it's sure. so it's really work for me to watch TV all the time. It's escapist. It's wonderful. I love it. It's interesting. I think if at a different time, I wonder if I would have pursued a career in film or something like that. It just wasn't really a as viable a career option at the time that I was graduating college. You know, a couple of years later, you heard of all these people from top colleges going into the film business, but it just seemed like more of a stretch when I was doing it. But as a kid, I was I watched a lot of TV, but I was also into sports and I wasn't particularly intellectual. My brother was the intellectual and he was competitive about that. So I went the other way and I was right. social and I was somewhat artistic, but not really. What do you mean, not really? I mean, they're the artsy kids in school. Right. And that wasn't me. You know, I would doodle and uh -huh. sketch and do art stuff. You know, yeah. my mom would hang it on the fridge and say, oh, you're so talented. Right. And typical Jewish mom stuff. But right. it wasn't like I was taking art classes or I never was in a school play. I have the worst voice. I have the soul of a rock star, but the worst voice in the world are you kidding me you have like a great radio voice yeah radio is not singing right i wish i could sing gotcha. i want to be on stage I, I talk about it on my radio show all the time because mm -hmm. i'll sing a little bit i want to be on stage i want to be like bono with my hand pumping in the air and the crowd screaming we'll talk a little about your uh journey into television in a moment but let's just back up a second and growing up was there any tv show that had a influence on you are you trying to get to like the medical tv shows that they push me to medicine yeah i'm thinking i think we'll get there what kind of put you on this path the medicine path what inspired you sure no, i'm not i don't consider myself a, a particularly inspired person we're gonna we're gonna find something you're gonna yeah i sometimes describe myself as an overachieving underachiever <laughs> I've been able to do a lot of things, but I feel like I'm not one of these. There's some people who are just so driven, who are doers, and I feel lazy internally. Mm -hmm. But I've been able to accomplish things. So that's fascinating, right? So what I always perceived of you was this kind of carefree, lighthearted, but... <laughs> you got to tell my wife that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's what I perceived you, right? But it was never a laziness. It's interesting, right? You describe it like that, but there's got to be something else there. It's almost like you have this ability to organize, compartmentalize everything that's going on and maybe have a better vision of like your day-to-day -day life. It's interesting because people ask you all the time why you chose emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. And the ER is kind of this place where there's so much going on and you have to focus very briefly and then you move on. And, right. and that kind of suits my personality. That's what I am like in life. I have these moments of focus. I don't last there very long, but I'm able to focus intermittently and then just move on to the next thing. It's just what I describe when I'm talking to people about it is it's very kind of high functioning attention deficit disorder, <laughs> which I think is a characteristic of emergency medicine, at least of a lot of us. Yeah, I think we describe ourselves that way as well. And you know, every time I'm in a restaurant and I'm watching the waiters kind of go table to table, like that's exactly what I'm doing in the emergency department, you know. Oh, I tell my friends who are waiters that our lives are very similar in a way. Yeah. There are these very intense rushes. It's a little unpredictable. There's a lot of teamwork. I wonder if you looked at the most highest clinically performing emergency medicine residents and look at their backgrounds and see if they were waiters and see if you could correlate that. I bet you you could find something there. Why don't you do a show on that's that? That's the kind of study I would rather do. Yeah. Than 
and something really about medicine. I think that's a great show for you. <laughs> so does anyone ever confuse you with Goldberg the wrestler? I we're, we're built the same. Yeah. <laughs> we actually had uh, on the radio show, which I, you may have talked about yep. in the introduction. I don't yes. Know. I, I don't get to listen to that. But right. I, so I do this radio show, and we had a Bill Goldberg day where we had all these different Billy Goldbergs on. Right. And he was a guest on the radio that's, show. That's great. So you had Bill Goldberg, the wrestler. By the way, you guys are born the same year. We are. You know that? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm 50 now. I just turned 50. Yeah. Well, he's actually, I think his birthday is in December. So you're older, but born the same year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Who are the other Bill Goldbergs? There were some just random people <laughs> that the, the producer dug up. He was the show. only notable Goldberg. We should have had just Goldbergs. Then we could have gotten, you know, Whoopi. And... Yeah. When I was researching you a little, you know, Whoopi's name kept coming up. <laughs> Cousin Whoopi. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, when we were kids, we used to frolic through the woods. Yeah. So how did you choose Spanish literature as your undergraduate major at University of Michigan? You did research me. Yeah. Oh, God. You were asking before about like medicine and art and all that stuff. So I ended up in medicine. I don't know really. My mom was a genetic counselor. Mm -hmm. So there was a little hospital attachment, but there were no doctors in the family. There was no doctor role models. It was basically if you were good at math and science, right. be a doctor. If you're good at social studies and, and English, they're like, be a lawyer. And that was the mantra that was there. I didn't like science, right. but I liked the idea of medicine. It's just somewhere in my mind, it's, that, it's the cliche of helping people. I liked the idea of that. And somehow I ended up you know, with that in mind. I went to college. I went to University of Michigan. And Michigan has a language requirement. Mm -hmm. So I get to Michigan as a freshman, and I have the choice of either, I had taken three years of Latin in high school, uh -huh. so four years would have gotten me out of it, and one year of Russian. So I can either try to test into Latin or you know, try to test into Russian, neither of which I want to do. Right. So I decide I want to learn to speak Spanish. I would love to live in Europe when I'm you know, a semester in college. So I ended up starting in Spanish 101 at Michigan, and it just was right. So I didn't want to major in a science. I knew I wanted to go to medical school, at least I thought I did, but I wanted to learn other things. I wanted to do other things. So this was kind of a way to learn other things, to not major in a science, right. and to satisfy the requirements. So it was kind of happenstance. Did you go from, did you do four years undergrad? I did. And you were able- <laughs> You thought I was one of those like people on the seven-year hey, plan? I was on the five-year, and I would have been happy to do the seven-year plan. You know, I would even go back to college if I had that opportunity. It's funny that you say that because I think we would do much better going back. Oh, God. I also want to go back to do my transitional internship. Yeah. When I'm talking medicine, it's like right. if somebody could pay me my salary now right. and my hours to just like do and see, it would be great. So I want to say, how did Spanish literature help you in medical school? <laughs> But did you struggle at all in medical school or did the sciences come easy to you? I did fine. I've been able to get by. I, right. like, I was not a big studier. I'm not a great tester, but I do fine. Right. I didn't worry about tests. People be all freaked out. Right. I didn't really worry about them until after. Right. So I'd be underprepared and then I'd kick myself after the fact. Oh, I should have studied harder. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. And then I would pass. So you consider yourself kind of a right brain type of person? I think so. Yeah. You know, thinking about how right-brainers approach 
detailed, complex, you know, deep, dense information in science. You know, that's fascinating to me because I have zero right brain whatsoever. You know, I'm intrigued in you know, how you approach knowledge and learning and even preparing for your shows. You know, it's kind of all the same thing, right? Do you have a technique, a way you think about these things? I really just don't think about it. <laughs> I'm not a big preparer. Uh-huh. You know, it's a detriment in, in a lot of ways for certain things. Again, getting back to medicine, you talk about the way I process. I'm not going to be able to teach somebody about acid-based things. There's, right. you know, there's probably the names of people you remember from when we were there who right. are just like could go into so much depth. Right. That's not going to be what I'm going to do for people. I wish I could. At this point in my life, I realize. And when I lecture, I kind of wing it. But that's not the person I'm going to be. So I don't think I have a method. It's I've been able to get by with instinct and a little luck. And I should change my ways. I'm 50 now. I better, I better start preparing. It seems to be working, whatever you're doing. No, but it's funny. I listen yeah. to, you know, it, no matter who it is, mm-hmm. people who are, who are very successful. And there's, mm-hmm. Normally, there's an enormous amount of preparation and drive. Right. I was listening to... Steve Martin was on Howard Stern. Right. And Howard Stern interviews are, a lot of people don't like him. Right. I, he's an amazing interviewer. The, probably the best, right? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. I mean, even the people, NPR people, Terry Gross is right. like, Howard Stern, one of the best interviewers out there. Right. He's actually our next guest. That'd be good. Yeah. I, I was on his I, show. I saw that. You were looking in his ear. Yeah, I did. Yeah. How was his ear? He's got nice ears. Nice ear. Yeah. yeah. Any hair? You know about medicine. You yeah. gotta respect yeah. oh, the doctor patient right. confidence. Yeah, you're right, you're right. I apologize. But you know, you did mention he had some cerumen in there in your uh post. Yeah. yeah. But uh all these people who are very successful, they usually have this exceeding, you know, drive and it goes with enormous preparation. And I feel like that's something that probably has held me back to some degree. Is right. that that's what I think is a little bit of I don't know, laziness, fear, whatever it is, but right. It could have been somebody. <laughs> Dr. Goldfrank, you know, whenever... You can't, I, you can't call him by his first name, can you? No. Yeah, it's funny. I interviewed Peter Rosen, right? And I'm calling him Peter, right? I've never, ever called Dr. Goldfrank Lewis. <laughs> I've, I've, I throw the Lou yeah. and the Lewis out there. Yeah. Well, you can, right? I mean... Yeah, I can. Yeah. But I also, I don't, it just doesn't feel right with him. He's, no. And I don't like to call him Dr. Goldfrank because that's too formal. So usually I just call him boss. Even though he stepped <laughs> down his chair, right. still boss is a good one. Yeah. When I make decisions in life, often medicine, he always, always kind of, you know, influences a little of what I do. What's the greatest influence Dr. Goldfrank has had on you? I love this idea of him. He's like a force ghost. Yeah. Are you a Star Wars person? Uh, somewhat, you know. Yeah. He's like he appears. And- uh-huh. Out of nowhere. You know, he's a fascinating guy. He's such an imposing character. You know, he, right. he's just there. He's this force of nature. Yes. Um, and I just, you know, talk about a guy who's driven yeah. and who's hardworking and right. prepares and focuses. It's not my style, but it's great to watch. I think it's inspirational to people. Whenever you work with somebody for so long, if it were, you know, work for and with the guy for 20 years, I think you learn a lot. And you learn from the positives and the negatives. So he's had a big impact in my career. Anything specific? Anything that your life, you make decisions in a certain way, you live a certain way that he's influenced directly? I don't think he, in that way, he's not one of those people who's had a big influence in my life. I've had some people who've had enormous influences in my life. 
Yeah. Um, you know, of course, course, parents and people like that. But there are people who just, you know, approach life in an interest. I, one of them is my dear friend from Spain, this guy, you know, Jose Maria. Okay. He changed my life. He's somebody who just a remarkable, remarkable character with such a free, open approach to life that kind of changed the way I saw things. So that was a remarkably important time in my life. When and how did you guys meet? So I went, I was majoring in Spanish literature at mm -hmm. Michigan, and I was taking the second semester of junior year to go live in Spain. And Jose was here vacationing in, in the States. We were on the same plane going to Spain. Right. And he actually met a friend of mine, an American friend who I met in this program I was going on. And I spoke to Jose a little bit in the airport because our plane was delayed, but didn't really connect with him. My friend did. They became friendly. Right. And one day, about a couple of weeks after I was there, I went to meet my friend and he was with Jose. I'm like, oh, I remember you from the airport. And we just became friends. Right. He was a big part of my life there. Right. And he would take me to places. Have you ever seen the movies, Spanish movies by Pedro Almodovar? No. They're these really quirky, amazing mm. Spanish movies. And Jose's life was like that. He's got this story that's, you know, never really knew his dad. He was born in a prison, a detention center. His mother was a prostitute. He, you know, was raised by a nun and escaped from the nun and was raised in the city of children. The story is just amazing. And he's just got this spirit right. and he kind of shares it with people and is very open. I just had this experience that was so different than anything, not only living in Europe, but being with this person who approached life so openly and with such joy that it was very refreshing. How old is Jose? Jose is probably, you know, 13 years older. He's at least 10 years older than yeah, I, probably gotcha. 13 years. So he works? Or did he work? Or Yeah, he works. Yeah. He works for the really for the Spanish government, more right. or less. He, in the Ministry of Arts and Culture, he organizes programs. and But he does a million and one things. He's a photographer, and he's always got his hands in something. So in Spanish life, there's yeah. an element of life-work balance that right. I think we have a big problem trying to deal with in our country. Over there, they work to live. They don't live to work. Right. And I think most doctors live to work. Right. They don't work to live. And you have to find some balance. You know, my work is very important to me, and uh -huh. I'm very dedicated to it when I'm there. And it, I take it very seriously, but it also isn't the only thing. And I think that was something that I really learned in Spain, and especially from Jose. Gotcha. Do you guys still keep in touch? Yeah. I saw him. We were the whole family. We took the whole family over there. Not this past summer, the summer before that. And they, my kids met him, and... We spent a lot of time. It's so easy to connect to people now. Yeah. Like that internet, that crazy <laughs> internet thing. So there's an article you posted uh, in one of your Facebook posts and talked about longevity, living a long, healthy life. And I was reading the article and I came across this Japanese concept called Ikigai. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but Ikigai represents kind of your reason for being and why you wake up in the morning. So I want to ask you, do you have an ikigai? Do you have a reason for waking up in the morning? An ikigai sounds like the guy who, it's like my, my Japanese butler. <laughs> He's my, has my ikigai. I had it for lunch yesterday. No, oh God, so yeah. fresh, it's fantastic. You know, it's probably that article, 
about the Blue Zones guy, yep. Dan Butner, was it that one? Yes. See, that's the kind of thing that I really love. Right. We all have this quest for perfect answers to things. Right. So this guy, Dan Butner, he wrote this article on New York Times Magazine. He's a National Geographic writer. Wrote this article in New York Times Magazine. I think it was called The Land Where They Forgot to Die. Exactly. And it's about Icaria, which is an island in Greece. Right. And it's one of these areas around the world where there's more centenarians. So more right. people live to 100. And he was studying these areas to find out, you know, why. Right. And there's really no great answer. Right. There's theories, you know, they eat a plant-based diet, but they right. eat, and they, you know, they drink alcohol, right. but in moderation. They exercise as part of their daily living. They have a community support group. They nap. They, you know, it, it's kind of moderation. It's a little bit of everything. And we always want the perfect answer for things. So I, patients in the hospital, they want an answer. We as doctors want to give an answer. And the truth is in life, I think so much of the time there isn't a clear answer. So I don't know where we got to that. That's from Ikigai. So I'm going to bring you back. Right? Yeah. So Ikigai. So thank you. That was a great summary. You know, I was reading that article on my, I was uh, driving home last night from Northern Michigan and I was going over the diet with my wife. I'm like, we got to get a garden. We got to start planting. <laughs> Yeah, it would be great. Yeah, it would be nice. But, you know, it wasn't, it was yeah, interesting. Sure you have a lot of time for that. Yeah, none. And meanwhile, I like my backyard is clay, so I can't even plant anything. But the then I was trying to look up, how do you grow things in clay? How do you grow plants in clay? There's a thing called an earth box. <laughs> an earth and, box. Yeah, don't, if the company wants to send me free ones, I'd take them. But right. you can build them. It's basically a self-irrigating planter. You can uh -huh. build them. And you basically can make them out of big Rubbermaid bins. Right. You know? PVC, right. they just, you can grow on that. So you just put those, make them five bucks a pop. You can YouTube it. Have you ever used one? Do you no, use it's, it's on my list of things. To do. Right. I have an enormous list of things to do. <laughs> so let's go back to Ikigai. Your reason for being, the reason for which you wake up in the morning. You know, in Costa Rica, they the article mentioned the Nicoyans. They have a, this may be actually more uh, apropos to you, a plan de vida. Now, you could comment on my Spanish accent there, but plan de vida or a lifelong sense of purpose. I wish I did. Yeah. I wish I was that purposeful or that introspective. I don't. I have a general concept that I just want to be happy, but I'm also, you know, a crabby guy also. So I don't wake up and embrace every day. Like, I wish I could. It sounds wonderful. So I don't have a plan de vida. Mm. I'm going to work on it. See? I've got my whole life ahead of me. <laughs> What's the most influential book you've ever read? Are you now going to get into your Inside the Actor's Studio question? No. This have you, is, seen, it? Have you yeah. seen that show? Yeah, I've seen a few, yeah. James Lipton gets you on those. I like it. You ask certain people, and they have the one book that's influenced them. I think... At different points in your life, you're experiencing different things, and, and a book can mean something to you. I don't hang on to them. Right. So I think there have been times in my life where certain books have been very important to me. I'm actually walking in my living room and looking at my bookshelf. So what are the three books that you've gifted the most, other than your own books? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, that, those would be easy. I, I, those I make people pay for. Right. See, what you gift isn't necessarily the, the most influential. There's a book that's a really fascinating nonfiction story. Mm -hmm. It's called The Long Walk. And for Long some reason, Walk. I've gifted that to a lot of people. Who, do you know who the author is off the top of your head? I can't even remember. Okay, I'll find it out. Why do you like it? Oh, it's this fascinating story of this you know, guy who escapes from a, a prisoner of war camp in Siberia. 
and walks his way to freedom. He walks across the Gobi Desert through the Himalayas, and it's just this remarkable, remarkable story of human survival. It's inspiring. It's, it makes me realize how good I have it, but it's a great story. You know, I love the unbearable lightness of being. I don't, I don't remember what it's about, <laughs> but you talk about, you know, this is getting back to uh-huh. my plan de vida or my ikigai. Yep. You know, there was a point in my life where I was trying to kind of figure myself out. And yeah. I think that went from college, really, it's still going on, but really the college through medical school period where I was, you know, kind of changing who I was and right. figuring out where my life was going to sit. And, and that was one of those really, those books that made me very, introspective and think about life. And I, if you ask me today why, I couldn't tell you. But that was a very influential book for me. It's called The the Unbearable Lightness of Being? Yeah, Milan Kundera. Okay. He's this Czech writer. And he was, it was actually made into a movie that was not that good. Okay. So knowing what you know now, what advice would you give, let's say, your 20-year-old self when you're, when you're starting medical school? Oh, my God. What would I, I'm trying to remember, my, my 20-year-old self wouldn't listen to a, a damn word I say, so I don't, wouldn't even waste my time knowing who I am. It's funny because you know, I have three kids, you know, they're young, my oldest is 10, and I try and think about like the things I've done wrong, right. and how I could have done things differently, and how I'm going to get them to learn those lessons, and then I have these moments of thinking, they're not going to listen to me, there's no way, you know, that's life. Right. You make your own mistakes and you find your own way and you try and create the safety net around your kids so that they don't really harm themselves. But I don't think there's a perfect way to get the advice around. I think of very silly, simple things mm-hmm. like the romantic advice I should give my son. Right. You know? But I was a dreamer and I don't think that was necessarily healthy, but it allowed me to achieve some things that I probably wouldn't have if I had given up on those dreams. You know, there was some suffering involved in creating this unrealistic fantasy of what I wanted my life to be like, what I wanted my romantic life to be like. And I think it was through some of the hiccups in trying to obtain that, that you, you, you learn who you are and where you should end up. So do you think... Do you, you have an answer to that for yourself? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I was very, and I still am, very insecure about myself about my intelligence, my ability to get things done. You know, I barely got through college, barely got through undergraduate college, and it was just simply applying myself, right? And so I think I'd probably tell myself, you know, it got to the point where I was so worried that I would do nothing in life and it would be a complete failure. But don't you think that made you work so much harder to get where you are? So if it wasn't for that worry, would you be here today? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I think, though, I still carry with me kind of like an imposter syndrome, right? I still have this insecurity. You know, they're going to find out about me soon, kind of a classic imposter syndrome. It's kind of just like take it easy, you know, relax a little. You know, it's not as serious as you thought it was. I don't know, laugh more. That may be, that may be what I have done. Advice is interesting. You know, it's very easy to do as I say, not as I do. Advice. Is there advice that was given to you that you wish you would have listened to? Specific advice. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a, an instance. I'm sure there's, you know, when the millions of people listen to it, I'm probably going to get a lot of phone calls. Remember that time I told you? Right. I mean, you probably get a lot of advice on your show, right? I give more advice give than more I advice, get. Yeah. So, What's the best advice you've been given? Oh, man, I'm so bad with details sometimes I, about questions like this. Yeah. It's so hard to reach in because 
I'm trying to think of the. I'm, I had one really really close friend, yeah. and we you know we have you know breakfast or lunch two or three times a week, yeah. and there's a lot of talking and a lot of back and forth, but it's not like you know the one specific piece of advice that that gets it done. So you would have breakfast two to three times a week with someone, same same person. Breakfast or lunch. Yeah. That's great. How long you been doing that? And we've known each other for 20 wow. years or so, wow. but not always in the same place. You go to the same place? We, 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 we mix it up a yeah. little. That's incredible. So let me reword this for you. If you could give your kids one or two pieces of advice when they're maybe going off to college, <laughs> what would it be? So to me, the, probably the most devastating thing in my life is stress. Right. You know, I saw it affect my dad. I saw it affect his health. I feel it affecting my own health. Right. If there was a way to not be stressed, and I could formulate some rational advice around this idea of just, just relax. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really one way to relax. But how do you get somebody to do that? I don't know what the answer is. Do you think you have like a laissez-faire approach to life? No. No. I wish I did in some way. I, I think people see that in me. Uh-huh. People who know me really well, I do and I don't. So I have an intensity, but I also, you know, like I'm a, a joyful complainer. It's a, it's a gift I have. So I, you know, I, I'm like an optimist and a pessimist yeah. at the same time. It's hard to explain. It's, you know. You're filled with these. Conundrums. Yeah, yeah little, filled with them. Uh, I don't know. Probably not as good for a podcast if I don't have these solid answers, but I, 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 don't right. th- I don't think there are solid answers to so many things in life. I'm going to spend the rest of my years trying to figure it out. But unless this podcast keeps going, and we, I think maybe if we go for another two hours, we probably can figure myself yeah. out. Cancel your appointments for well, the day. I have lunch with my friend. <laughs> when you're doing your on Sirius XM Dr. Radio, how do you prepare? So I was actually on that show. You, you invited me as a guest when I was a resident. And you picked the best time for me. It was after an overnight, a really busy overnight. And I actually think on that day you had a specialist, an expert in bad breath, halitosis. I remember the bad breath guy. Yeah, it was great. And of course, they had to test our bad breath. And I just worked an overnight, right? Drank tons of coffee, ate terrible, you know, food. We had that machine. Oh, yeah. I wonder what happened. I think what I'm... You know, you talk about things. I always worry that I have bad breath. I think most people have bad breath most of the time. Yeah. It's on my list of things to do. (laughs) Organic gardening and and better oral hygiene. So how do you prepare before each of your broadcasts? Do you have a routine? (laughs) I wake up in the morning. I take a deep breath and my ikigai. So I do the show every Thursday. Right. And it really is... Very free form. Uh-huh. You've been on the show. It's we have a producer who used to try and create this rundown for us, which was, you know, a lot of shows have a lot of guests and they try and map out exactly what you're going to do. And over the years, we just ignored the rundown right. and did it our own way. So right. I've, I've had different calls over the years, and we wing it, and that's the way I like to do it. Wow, I think that's the style that works for me. So I'll during the week I'll think about some things. Right. I used to be a much more of a note taker. Uh-huh. I used to carry these sketchbooks around all uh-huh. the time. And I would, you know, do drawings and take notes. I don't do that as much anymore. But I kind of have these things in my mind. Occasionally, I'll email one or two of them to myself. And then the night before, I'll look at some of the medical news that's out there. So I'll look on NPR Health. 
right. and, and Google health right. to update myself. And then I just go in and it's really in the shower, right. those, that five minutes in the shower before I leave for the radio show uh -huh. where I kind of conceive of what I'm going to maybe talk about. Right. It just comes naturally to me. I'm lucky in that way. Right. It's, I like talking. I like to, there are people who fear giving a speech. Right. I love to have the microphone in my hand. Like I go to a wedding and I see, you know, see somebody giving a speech and I, even if I don't know the person, right. like I want to give a speech. Right, right. That's fascinating. So do you, you ever get nervous? Not really. Uh -huh. There's a, I tell a great story about, yeah. you should never preface, I tell a great story. <laughs> then it's never a great story. Let's I hear tell it. a story yeah. about the first, really the first time I was on TV. Uh -huh. And it was right after the book came out. So uh -huh. Vitamin Have Nipples, the book yeah. I wrote. It came out, and it was this whirlwind because, you know, I had these delusions of grandeur that I was going to sell a million copies, and everyone's like, you're not, you're, you're being ridiculous. And there was some hype around it initially. They were going to, oh, yeah, we really like this. It's, we're going to publish this many copies. And then that number got cut in half and got cut in half and got cut in half. And then the book came out, and it was in the reference section. Right. And you couldn't find it in the store. Right. Then a... Article got released on the wire by Reuters. Right. Next thing you know, the phone's ringing. Right. So CNN is at my house. Right. I'm going to be on the Today Show the next morning. So I did this CNN TV interview at my house, which was fine. It was right. felt comfortable. It was, and then I go to the Today Show, and I'm cool as can be. I'm laughing and joking, and totally relaxed. You know, they they do your makeup, you know, which is the first time I've like had makeup on. Right. And now I. Kind of like the Caitlyn Jenner of emergencies, <laughs> and you're going through this whole process, and you know it's, it's the weird coincidences are happening. My friend from growing up is the sound guy, and his girlfriend is the makeup person, and so it's just like this social event, and I'm like, oh, totally relaxed, and I get down to the stage, right. and there's all. I mean, it, you talk about how a kitchen and ER, it's their version of that. Right. There's a lot of moving pieces, a lot's going on. And I am like a deer in the headlights. I'm terrified. Uh -huh. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my God, this is not my element. Uh -huh. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And I, uh, uh, and I just, I'm totally frozen. And then they walk you out, and I'm like stiff as a board trying to walk. Can't figure out how to sit in the chair. And I'm going to be on the couch. Mm -hmm. you know, so I'm sitting in a chair, and there's going to be Matt Lauer, Katie Couric, 8 o'clock, the Today Show. And I'm like, uh, uh, and they come over. And they just totally put you at ease. Mm. And they're very, very professional. And they're great at what they do. Mm -hmm. It was like having a conversation with some friends at a cocktail party. And you kind of forget about it all. And I think once you've done it, it becomes natural. Did you take anything away from that experience and you apply it to when you have guests on your show, on Dr. Radio? I don't think about it. I mm. probably should. No. Because I think there's an element to it interviewing that if you can put people at ease yeah that's when you get the best out of people um i don't do a ton of interviews that are like that i mean right. this kind of interview this kind of podcast interview is so much different than you rarely have this much time to talk about you know, personal things and disarming things but i think that's what makes for a great interview i think that works in the hospital too you know when you're talking to a patient that's what's so important about medicine is uh -huh. if you can do that to a patient and how do you it can be a very simple thing and as you walk into the room in the right way, you engage their family member, you sit on the edge of the bed, whatever it is, you know, you get the subtleties of things. I pick up things all the time from patients, the residents, like, how did they, they didn't tell me that. And it's usually that they right. either didn't ask 
or you didn't make the person comfortable enough that they released these things to you. Right, right. So you have your first two books, right? Why Do Men Have Nipples? Hundreds of Questions You'd Only Ask a Doctor After Your Third Martini, which was published, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, 2005. Yeah, I think it's 2005. Yeah, and Why Do Men Fall Asleep After Sex? More Questions You'd Only Ask a Doctor After Your Third Whiskey Sour, which was published in 2006. But both of those were, were they both number one New York Times bestsellers? Yeah. That's incredible. It's so crazy. Yeah, yeah. Was number one on the bestseller list in, in the category. Right, sure. For 11 weeks. Now, the category, my favorite accomplishment, it was not that. My favorite accomplishment was when we were number one on Amazon of all books. Wow. For a very brief time. Uh-huh. I can't remember which Harry Potter it was at the time, yeah. but we were actually ahead of Harry Potter. That's a tough one to, yeah. to beat. And no magic. Yeah. So, yeah, I was going to ask right, a couple things. So, first is, you know, how did that change your life? How did, right? Because that's that's a very unique position that very very few authors even get to. Right? Everyone dreams about it. How does it? How did it change your life? Oh God! I don't think it changed my life in any way. It was a step in this path that I wanted to be on my whole life, and it was just another. It opened up some opportunities. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Nobody at work really knew that I was. Yeah. I mean, a couple of people did. Right. I just did it on my own time, and it was. You know, the whole thing was going on. You talk about Lewis Goldfrank, mm-hmm. Dr. Goldfrank, mm-hmm. boss. He found out about it. I hadn't told him. Right. And the man who you don't think even owns a TV. Right. I don't think he does. He knows everything, though. But he was across the street at the Poison Control Center, and somehow the Today Show was on. <laughs> and he saw me on the Today Show, and I come back to work. I went back to work that uh-huh. day on the Today Show. Uh-huh. And he's like, so it's a it's a very good good book, very interesting. <laughs> How do you think that's going to help patients? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you know, it, it opened up other opportunities. I put a little money in the bank, right. which was nice. Sure. You know, for the college fund of sure. kids. Sure, absolutely. But I think it opened up the opportunity for the radio show. I think a lot of doctors at NYU were asked to participate in this collaboration with Sirius when they formed the channel. Right. I think they saw me as somebody with media experience, and right. so I had a leg up and that put me in this position to to have a show of a different style right and to be the first show on the on the channel which was great it led to other opportunities i had an enormous amount of fun i met some great people along the way it was an amazing 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 experience if i was harder work see this ties into my underachieving things i probably could have made so much more of that opportunity uh-huh. had I dealt with it differently yeah so my wife's an author and you know, the authors I speak with talk about how challenging, how hard it is to write sometimes. Let's not put me and your wife in the same category. <laughs> you know, your wife is a academic and author and, you know, I wrote a toilet book, you know, with a medical <laughs> twist. You know, I always have to decide whether I'm going to read Uncle John's Bathroom Reader or Why Do Men Have Nipples See? when I'm in the toilet. You put the book in the right place. Yeah, exactly. But no, there, there's so many different styles. Right of being a writer or being an artist or not even necessarily an artist. People pursue this as their careers. There's intellectuals who write things. You know, I specifically wrote something for a mass market audience. Right. That was my goal. And I think a lot of the stuff I do that's somewhat related to medicine, but outside of medicine is for that, you know, to, to reach a broader audience. So it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder for your wife. 
yeah when you were writing for your books is it kind of you're thinking about this in your mind and you're just writing your thoughts on paper and you're just speaking to the paper <laughs> you're making me have to be much more intellectual than i am and the book was a long process so yeah. it was just this how long did you work on it it started in medical school i had this idea it was again on this list of the of many ideas i have yeah you ever see that movie the night shift with Michael Keaton and Henry Winkler. A long time ago. Yeah. Most yeah. Michael Keaton's this weird character who's yeah. like, I'm an idea guy. Right. Yeah. I, so I have like these lists of these ideas, uh -huh. you know, and, and most of them I don't follow through on. And this was one of the ones I was like, this is the greatest idea ever. Right. And no, everyone's like, ridiculous. <laughs> um, and I just kept, it was festering. And by circumstance, I was able to put it together. And, you know, a friend who's a writer presented it to his agent. They just like, yeah, like, sounds like a good idea. But I don't have a process, really, that I, I worked on it, and it's not that in-depth. I would love to write-write, but I don't feel like I'm disciplined enough. Hmm. I don't know. You're pretty disciplined. You This I, this felt like the lazy version of writing. God. It's like little bits, and you, it doesn't... Uh -huh. And then you piece it together after, so... The lazy version of writing. Stops, stops and yeah. starts. Yeah. Number one New York Times bestseller with the lazy writing. That's impressive, uh, Billy. I'm an, I told you I'm an overachieving underachiever. Yeah, I love it. What is one thing about you that most people don't know? Oh, man. I'm pretty open about who I am. It's weird because, you know, you mentioned the stuff that people didn't know at work. I, have, I do have two lives. I have this, you know, a lot of people don't know my outside interests right. at work because it's like the, the, the Billy thing is an interesting thing. I, like, what did you call me at work? You probably called me of Bill. Of course. No, I've called Dr. Goldberg. You're a very formal guy. Yeah, but I did not know about your other life, so to speak, until I think my last year of residency. Yes, because so I was like, for some reason, like, you know, my friends all called me Billy. I was always Billy growing up. Right. But in medical school, mm -hmm. you know, you got to be serious. So right. I was, somehow I became Bill. Uh -huh. so it doesn't feel like me. Right. But, you know, it's a lot of it is acting. Right. And... I had this outside life and this work life, and I kind of kept them separate to some degree. And then, you know, occasionally you find people who can cross worlds, and people from work saw my friends calling me Billy, and they started calling me Billy. And then, you know, I had this success that was so public, and people saw that side of me. But there's still a lot of people who don't know that I do other things outside of it, and I do keep some of those things private. Sure. I mean, Somebody asked me to talk about it. I have no hesitation to talk about anything. I just, there is a separation. I like to get into work, do my thing, and then, then get out. So I asked about five doctors this over the last week. Why do men have nipples? Nobody knows. No one knows. Well, a lot of these, that's the whole genesis of the thing, is that they don't teach us the stuff that people ask. They don't teach us the silly things. Like, my, one of my favorite questions from the book is yeah. what causes an innie or an Audi? Uh -huh. Because I went to medical school and I was convinced that somebody tied a knot in that thing. Right. Because it looks like a knot. Right. And I figured if your doctor was a good knot tier, right, you have an innie. And if you tied a bad knot, it's an Audi. That's right. But that's the kind of questions that are were in the book. That's how it kind of came about. Because the stuff, you know, when did a cocktail party does somebody ask you, you know, what's your antibiotic of choice for communication? <laughs> Never, right? What's the sensitivity and specificity of a rapid strep test? You know, they don't 
ask those things. They ask ridiculous things that we don't study. Right. And why do men have nipples became one of those questions. I, I'm. That's such a great line. I came up with the question, yeah. but I didn't come up with that as the title for the book. I have to give credit elsewhere. That that was the publisher. Gotcha. You know, sometimes there's the benefit of that title, but to be, are you walking around New York ever and people are saying, hey, there's the nipple guy. <laughs> it's so funny. Nobody knows who I am. I'm like, I'm not recognized. I, I was on the so I was on the Today Show that, that time. And then I did Weekend Today. Right. And we were going away for the weekend. We were going to Lake George to uh-huh. visit my wife's friend. And we stopped at a rest stop. And I got out of the car and I was like, oh, people are going to recognize me. Uh-huh. And I, at this moment, I'm like, <laughs> I got back in the car, of course, after nobody recognized I'm like, who do you, you, what an idiot you are. I'm like, you're such, you know, a small fish. You know, and even with the, the radio show, I have occasionally people will hear my voice. I was in the ER with my wife's grandmother in right. New Jersey. Right. And I was talking to the nurse and this lady rips back the curtains and she's sucking on her, her nebulizer. Right. She goes, are you Dr. Billy? Wow. Because she recognized my voice. But sure. I, you know, in the medical world, I'm somewhat recognizable. But outside of that, nobody knows who I am. I mean, I feel, I, you know, that's the thing. You know, you talk about being a fraud, right. and that idea of it. Imposter, like, I yeah. feel like that. I, I feel like an imposter all the time, both in medicine, both in everything I do. It's I feel like a not necessarily an imposter, but a, such a cog in the machine. Uh-huh. You know, there's so many people who do what we do, and there's a lot of people who do it really well. And what separates me from anybody else? I'm not. I don't think I'm a. I'm not a superstar by any means. I'm just one of those guys. One of those guys. So I know you our time's coming close here to the end. I just have a few more questions I want to touch on. And, you know, I was thinking about this. You've been working at NYU Bellevue for about 20 years, you said. So you were there during both 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy, right, in 2012. I was not there no. during 9-11. You weren't, no. I was in Jamaica. Oh, wow. Not Jamaica, Queens. <laughs> We were doing a medical thing. We were actually starting a volunteer ambulance corps. Uh-huh. Early stages of it where we were doing some first aid and water rescue and right. simple like EMT teaching. Right. But I was down in Jamaica during 9-11. That was hard. Hard to be away. Yeah. Did your trip get extended or could you fly oh, yeah. back? Yeah. We were stuck down there for an extra four or five days. Yeah. It was really hard to be away. Sure. sure. Desperately every morning waking up to try and get out of town and then... You're in Jamaica, so then you like grab a red stripe and wander into wasting right. water, and like, I'm like, oh my God, what's going on in the world? Right. So, what about Hurricane Sandy? Hurricane Sandy, I was here. I was, I was actually at home that evening. Uh-huh. I live in a in a basement apartment. Uh-huh. It's a block from the Hudson River, uh-huh. and that was an, quite an experience. Sitting on the couch, the lights went out, and a police car drove by. And like anybody on the ground floor or below. Seek higher ground immediately. And the water was like a half a block away. Right. But the hospital, I, I wasn't involved in a lot of the evacuation stuff. Right. I was administratively involved in trying to get us back up and running and staffing gotcha. at other hospitals. But I was actually at, at a hospital in New York. I was doing my internship during the first World Trade Center bombing. Uh-huh. And so I was in L.A. during the earthquake, the big Northridge quake. Right. So as an ER doc, I've had my share of disasters. Yeah, I'm going to stay away from you. <laughs> 
I'm a bad, I'm bad luck. Yeah. All right. So there's one thing that piece of advice you gave me that I never got to thank you for. It was actually on my way out of residency. It was 2008. And I can't wait, I can't wait to yeah. hear Because yeah. <laughs> I certainly don't remember. It's very uh, Billy-esque. Like it's very Billy-esque. Yeah. yeah it's, uh... Always look both ways before you cross the street. <laughs> so you said my wife was pregnant. She was delivering maybe in two months, in right July, and this was the end. This was right May of, of residency, the very end. And you said, make sure you buy the happiest baby on the block book by Harvey Karp. And Five S's. Oh, God. Yeah, that's the lifesaver book right there. But I wanted to ask you, do you you have – back then, I, th I think when, when I left Bellevue, you had maybe – it's 2008, so you definitely had... My my son was born in 2006, and my daughter was born in 2008. Right. And another one in 2009, so... That's right. I, I, two. I remember, yeah. So do you have any particular philosophy on parenting? <laughs> <laughs> that is the hardest nut to crack. My wife is actually a postpartum doula now. She went back wow. and, because she, you know, learned by being a mom, and it's very natural. And so she's like the parenting expert, and I just, I'm along for the ride. I think it's the hardest thing. It's yeah. the greatest thing and the hardest thing in the world. I don't understand how people who don't have the burning desire to have kids actually deal with having children. <laughs> right. Like I always, yeah. I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to have a family. That was an essential part of who I wanted to be. And I, at times, I'm like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? Right. It's so hard and it's wonderful at times, but just absolute torture at other times. So, yeah, those days were easier when you just had to do the basics to keep them alive. And now it's getting even harder. Yeah. Is it working out okay? Yeah. I mean, my kids are, I have two now, seven and five, but definitely the two hardest things in life that no one ever tells you is raising kids and marriage, right? I mean, I have a great marriage, but it's, <laughs> I never thought you, you actually have to work on a marriage, right? You you have to work on relationships. And that was just me, right? It just always came so easy. But two things that are just, but the rewards, like you said, are incredible, right? You have yeah, a great relationship. You have to, you're choosing the right partner. Yeah. You talk about like advice I want to give my kids. That is the, the most essential thing. And I don't, I don't even know how you figure it out, but yeah. because what you think is the right person for you at one point in your life is really not necessarily the person who you have a successful marriage with. That's right. Yeah. All right. So I know, uh, we got about like 40 more topics to cover. Yeah. So this is what we're going to do. Cause I know you have a lot going on and we're going to hopefully try and maybe we'll do a part two. We'll get more into, have you done a part two with anyone yet? No, I'm part two worthy. You're, you're part two worthy. Yeah. Oh my we, I mean, there's so much more. So I'm so much touched. More. Yeah. We'll do a part two. And maybe what we could do is we'll have some of the listeners, right? I'll uh, aggregate some some questions and you can maybe do a solo appearance. We'll see. I feel like I don't do good with the questions. I'm, I'm better off the cuff. You know, you stumped me on a lot of those questions. Well, you have time to think about it. And look at the bookshelf more after I, yeah. after I get off with you. <laughs> Figure out what books I should recommend to people. So where can listeners find you on the internets? Gotta get myself. I've seen this is, I, I've been trying to do a podcast. Yeah, I actually did it like one of the first podcasts we did right. a podcast um, with MSNBC. That what you know? I, I went to the link and it was a dead link. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That's where I've become. <laughs> 
You can listen to the radio show on uh-huh. SiriusXM 110, okay. Thursdays from 8 to 10. Okay. I have a website that's askdrbilly.com, okay. which is, I just, you kind of need to do it. Like you mentioned Facebook. I never post except for this other side. So I don't post personal stuff. So I have, you know, Twitter, I'm at askdrbilly, and that's kind of the, the thing. Gotcha. Books are in Amazon, but they're you know, collecting yeah. dust now. I need my next project. Well, yeah. The TV show was a great one, which we'll talk. We can talk about in part two. Yeah, that was fun, and I'm trying to get that out there somehow. So this TV show, what's what was the name of it? It was called The Dose with Doctor Billy. And where? So I shot eight episodes of this TV show uh-huh. with a health and wellness startup at Turner, uh-huh. and they aired two, mm-hmm. and the network went under. Gotcha. I brought the network to its knees. <laughs> So I was watching a few of the sneak peeks into it, and I saw you do this. Um, so Tim Ferriss had this show as well, right? It was the Tim Ferriss experiment or something yeah. like that. It sounded like he actually then maybe bought the rights or transferred the rights to someone. And he, he bought was... the rights and then released it himself. So yeah. it's like iTunes store. Right. I don't have the cash that he has or the cachet. <laughs> I don't so, know. I watched a few of them, and they were great. I, I watched, Great you know, production value. The company yeah. did it. Uh, is they're amazing. Yeah. So I wish the show was out there. I wish people could see it. Yeah. All right. So we will wrap up here. We'll be more next time. And uh, Billy, I want to thank you so much for your time. And we will post all of your links to your books, to your show on SiriusXM with the show notes on the website. So How about that? Look yeah. at that. Yeah. Thank you, and hey, I look forward. Adam, for you, anything. <laughs> we miss you at the old ha- at the office. old home. Yeah, at NYU Bellevue. Yeah, well, you're not coming back, are you? I'm in Michigan. I'm a Wolverine now. Woo! Yeah. Go blue. Yeah. So, all right. Thank you again. Anytime. It's been it's wonderful. Hey guys, this is Adam. Thanks again for listening. If you liked this episode, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast and leave a review. Every positive review helps. Also, remember to subscribe to the podcast so you automatically get episodes downloaded to your podcast library. Please send any questions or feedback to the email conversations at roshreview.com. If there's someone you have in mind who you'd like for me to have a conversation with, please let me know. Don't forget to check out the Rosh blog at roshreview.com backslash blog for more excellent content. And if you are a student, a PA, nurse practitioner, or doctor who is in a training program or residency or has an upcoming exam, take a look at roshreview.com and sign up for a free trial. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode. So long.